Before we jump into that text, what I do want us to do, however, is I want us to get a little bit of, of background of the context of where we were last week. Last week, uh, the Israelites went to battle against the Philistines, and when they were in the battle, they lost uh, their first battle. 4,000 men died. As a result, they asked the question, why was the Lord's hand against us? And instead of getting the answer, instead of figuring out, oh, well, we need to repent. They just said, let's go grab the Ark of the Covenant and let's bring it to battle with us. And we are told that the day that they brought the Ark of the Covenant to their campsite, that the war cry of the Israelites was so loud, was so enthusiastic that the ground shook and that the Philistines, who just won a battle, began to fear, saying, what is going on here? And when the Philistines learned that the Ark of the Covenant had entered into the camp of Israel, they shook with fear. They said, this has never been done before. They made the mistake of confusing the Ark of God with God himself, and they said, a God has entered their camp. But they went ahead and went into battle, and much to everybody's surprise, they actually won the battle. And Israel had a great loss. They didn't lose 4,000 men like they did before, but rather they lost 60,000, uh, 30,000 men. In the ancient world, there was this belief that when two peoples went to war against one another, that their gods in the heavens were also battling against each other. So in the mind of, of the Philistines, what was happening as they were going against Israel, their god, Dagon, was attacking and going against Israel's god. And whenever the Philistines were victorious, they believed that they were victorious because their God in the heavens was victorious in his battle against Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so it left this idea that, that their God was stronger, that the God of the Israelites was weak. But as we read our passage today, chapters 5, 6, and beginning in 7, we, we find that God was not defeated and God was not weak. In fact, at the very end of chapter 6, in chapter 6, verse 20, the people of Israel ask this question. Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? So today, what we want to do is we want to look at our passage and we want to ask that question. We want to ask, who can stand against the Lord, this holy God? The first thing we find in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 5 is that idols cannot stand against a holy God. In chapter 5, verse three, uh, verses 1 through 3, we find that the Philistines, after capturing the ark, bring it to their temple of their false god, Dagon. Dagon was, was a fertility god associated, associated with vegetation and grain, and they brought the Ark of the Covenant, this special piece of furniture used in the worship of God. They brought the Ark of the Covenant into Dagon's temple as a trophy. It was a way of saying, look what our God did. Our God defeated Israel's God. They had a big party. They went to bed only to wake up the next morning, according to chapter 5, verse 3, only to wake up the next morning to find that Dagon was laying face down before the ark, almost like he was lying prostrate before him. When the Philistines thought, saw this, they, they would have obviously thought that this was a bad omen, 
but also kind of in the back of their mind, they're thinking, you know what? Maybe there was a tremor. Maybe there was an accident. Maybe our idol just fell over. So they lifted their idol up, put him back in position, made sure he was sturdy, went about their day, went to bed. And when they woke up the next morning, they came back into the temple of Dagon and they found something that surprised them all. The torso, the body of their idol was still standing upright. And scripture tells us in verse four that the head of Dagon and the hands of Dagon were broken off and lying and setting on the threshold. What this really reminds me of um, is, is, is the intentionality of where those were placed. Think, think of when Jesus rose from the dead uh, and, and the disciples ran into, ran into the tomb to find Jesus. They didn't find the, the grave clothes just dropped on the ground or thrown in a corner, but found his grave clothes folded. There is intentionality about how he left the grave. Here, God had intentionality about what he did to Dagon. The word broken off in the Hebrew actually means to cut. So there's this idea that, that Dagon was cut to pieces. And then those pieces, the head and the hands, were not just randomly on the floor like they might have fallen off, but they were placed with intentionality on the threshold, declaring that idols cannot stand against Israel's God. The idols cannot stand in the Lord's presence. I think oftentimes, as modern people, we might look back on peoples in the past. We might look back on ancient peoples, and we just don't understand the worship of idols. We think it might be silly. We might think it's, it's archaic. But the truth of the matter is, is that we still set up idols in our heart. Tim Keller has a great book called The Counterfeit Gods. And he says this about idols and about false gods. He said, in ancient times, idols were bloodthirsty and hard to appease. Idols were bloodthirsty and hard to appease. And then he says they still are today. And he says this in the introduction of his book. Are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, but the same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society. We may not physically kneel before a statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. We might not have idols today that we set up. We might have, not have statues that we burn incense to, but what Tim Keller is saying and what scripture says again and again is that in our hearts, we set up these false gods, these false idols. And remember what Tim Keller said in the ancient times, idols were bloodthirsty and hard to appease and they still are today. Look at, think about the quote of what he said that, that we have this idol of beauty and people sacrifice their health for it. We have this, this idol of power and prestige and wealth, 
and, and we have a, a type of child sacrifice to this God. We still have these idols in our heart today. As Christians, our, God, our, our job is, is to root out these idols in our heart. I, I imagine when I use that phrase, root out, I think of, of, of a pig or a hog rooting out mushrooms from the ground, digging deep into it to find it. We need to have that type of ferocity as we attack them, saying, I want to find them, I need to find them, because we need to root them out. We need to, to get rid of them. Some of you, as soon as I mentioned this, this idea of heart idols, automatically you knew what your, yours is, or, or it's obvious to you, you're aware of it. Some of you might not know your idol that you worship, that you sacrifice to, but you see the effects in your life. Things that make you worry, things that make you fear, things that fill your heart with anxiety. Some of you might not even think this applies to you. But the truth of the matter is, we all have idols in our heart, and we, like a, like a pig after a mushroom, need to root those things out. I encourage you to find a quiet time in your life uh, in order to evaluate your life, to find out what the idol is. I encourage you to go to the Lord in prayer and pray that God would reveal that idol to you. In fact, I'd even ask you to go to a brother or sister in Christ, asking them, like, what do you see in my life? And have them evaluate your life with you. Let it be a conversation between two of you trying to find out what that idol is because when we find it we need to cut off its head we need to take its hands off we need to let it lie prostrate before the lord because it cannot stand in front of our god but oftentimes what we do instead is even when we find it like the philistines we lift that idol back up and we set it back up and we continue to worship it But these idols cannot stand in the presence of our holy God. Not only can idols not stand against our our holy God, but neither can people. The Philistines, uh, there's this idea that whenever Dagon was defeated, the Philistines should have repented. They should have said, all right, your God is dominant. We want to follow your God. But rather rather than repenting of their sins... All they did was return the ark. But we see that even people cannot stand before our God. What happens? We see this in the book of chapter 5, verse 6, that not only was Dagon defeated, but the people of the the Philistine cities were also defeated. That the Lord sent mice into their communities, into their fields, that the people began to be plagued with tumors and that people began to die. And not only that, but it said that panic began to spread throughout all the people. They, they were defeated by God. They could not stand in God's presence. But instead of repenting, they returned the ark of God. So people cannot stand before God. And you would think that, okay, yeah, the Philistines can't stand before God, but the Israelites, surely they can stand before God. They're God's people. But when we look at chapter 6, around verse 19, we find that God even struck down his own people. Why? Here it says, because they looked inside the ark 
of the Lord. This could mean a couple different things. It could mean that they literally opened up the chest. The Ark of the, of the Covenant was a chest that they looked inside of it. Uh, but the way that the Hebrew is phrased, it could mean that they looked upon it almost with contempt. That rather than treating it as holy, rather than treating it as, as an object of worship, or not as an object of worship, but as an object to help their worship to God, to make sacrifices on, rather they viewed it as a way to make money, to make a profit. But either way, whether they looked in the ark or they looked on it as, as a way to increase their, their money and their prestige in Israel, either way, they did not treat God as holy. And we are told that the Lord struck down 70 of them. Even God's people here were, were not able to stand in front of the ark, instead in front of God's presence. Why? We are told in Psalms 106 why. It says this of the people of God. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them, but mingled with the nations and adopted their ways. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. So the land became polluted with blood. They defiled themselves by their actions and prostituted themselves by their deeds. Therefore, the Lord's anger burned against his people, and he abhorred his own inheritance. He handed them over to other nations who hated them and ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. He rescued them many times, but they continued to rebel deliberately and were beaten down by their own iniquity. When he heard their cry, who took note of their distress, he remembered his covenant with them, and he relented according to the abundance of his faithful love. Why couldn't the Philistines stand against God? Why couldn't even the people of God stand in his holy presence? It was because they were the same. They all had rebelled against the Lord in their hearts, in their minds, and in their actions. So we are left with this question. Who can stand? Who can stand in God's presence? And the answer is, ultimately, no one. No idol can stand. No false god can stand. No person can stand against God. Why? We're told in the book of Romans chapter 4, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one can stand before a holy God because no one is holy. What makes you think, O Christian, that you are better than any other human being on this earth? I think oftentimes Christians look at people with contempt. Not always, but often we look at them with contempt, thinking that people are not as moral as we are, that people are not as good as we are, that we somehow have earned our, our place with God. But what Scripture says is that we are no different from anybody. The same sin that corrupted the Philistines was the same sin that corrupted the Israelites. This is why... We need Jesus. The same sin that the Philistines had, the Israelites had. And together, they are sons and daughters of their father, Adam. Sons and daughters of their mother, Eve. 
The Bible tells us that Adam and Eve were representative humans. That in Adam, all people took on his sin. When Jesus came, he came as a new Adam, a new representative human being. And where Adam fell, Jesus succeeded. Where Adam fell into sin, Jesus rejected it. Where Adam brings death to his children, Jesus adopts us into life. And when we are his, we are robed with his righteousness, his goodness. It tells us this in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. He, Jesus, did not commit sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. The only way any human being can stand in the presence of God is if they are standing in Jesus Christ. That when God looks at him or her, he does not see their brokenness and their sinfulness, but rather when he looks on them, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. It's the only way any of us can stand. So what should we do with this information? What should we do with these truths? First of all, after we have identified our idols in our life, we need to repent and we need to believe. We need to turn away from those idols and turn to the true and living God. It's what the Philistines should have done. When they saw the inadequacies of their God, they should have turned to the one true and living God. They should have repented. They should have put their trust in him. That's what we need to do. Repentance and belief is not just how Christians come into the faith, into the Christian faith, but it's how we live our lives daily. Our daily action as Christians is an act of repentance and trust on a daily basis. Not only do we need to identify idols, repent of them, and believe in Jesus, but I think this passage is also calling us to walk humbly. We need to remember that there was no difference between the Philistine and the Israelite, that they had the same brokenness, the same sin in their heart, that the only difference between them was that God had called one and not the other. When we look at our lives, we have done nothing to earn or deserve God's grace. And so when we live out in the world, we need to walk humbly with other people. We need to be not quick to criticize. We need to be not quick to push people aside, but we need to prayerfully and patiently plead with people to hear and to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ Community Church, let us do this on our daily basis, praying and pleading with people to come to know Jesus, walking walking humbly with them. Let us pray.